Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent, author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which you can get as a paperback, an audiobook, and the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're listening to this, whenever you're watching this, because who loves you? Rob Kent loves you from the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. Uh, as always, check out interviews with thousands of literary agents, editors, authors, all the best people at middlegradeninja.com. Plus, uh, the entire back catalog of the show. What are you waiting for? Well, finish finish listening to this episode and then head to middlegradeninja.com. So tonight, my guest is none other than Carrie Syme, author of the new book, Horse Girl. Carrie, how are you this evening? Hi, Rob. I'm so well. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for making time. I am absolutely thrilled to chat with you because there is just a um, hundred different roads we could go down right off the bat because you it seems like you've done a little bit of everything i've been down uh, a few roads rob what usually what i ask people to do because i i want to keep friends in the industry i never summarize another person's biography or another person's book uh so if you would give esteemed audience kind of uh, an overview of carrie Symes, we'll go from there okay hello esteemed audience pleasure to meet you all so i grew up in nebraska which is where my new book horse girl is set and my very first job out of college was with the Sundance Film Institute in Los Angeles. So I ended up moving from the Midwest to the big city of LA, and I had this incredible job working for the International Writing Program of Sundance. And my job was to help organize conferences or workshops between international screenwriters and US independent screenwriters. So we would put on these one week workshops, travel around the world. And it was just an amazing first job, but also kind of a bad first job because what's ever gonna live up to that? You know, it's it was just, I was totally spoiled. But um, I did realize that I also wanted to be doing my own writing and creating and not just facilitating others' writing. So at the same time, I started taking classes at the Groundlings which is this famous comedy theater in Los Angeles. And you may know, like, a lot of the Saturday Night Live cast members come from the Groundlings. So Will Ferrell and Maya Rudolph and Kristen Wiig and some of the newer one, newer cast members, Mikey Day and Heidi Gardner, they all came from the Groundlings. And so I knew that is where I wanted to go and learn. And that's where I learned to create some sort of, like, wonderfully weird characters and create dialogue and, and scenes that were crackling because when you're performing in front of a live audience, like you know right away if something is killing it or something's totally bombing. So it was this incredible education and, uh, and, and an incredible place to meet other like-minded, funny, creative weirdos, which are my people. Um, and one night at the Groundlings, in the audience was a scout for Saturday Night Live. And he came to my show. I was performing in the Sunday Company, which you kind of have to go through a bunch of classes and auditions and you finally get into the Sunday Company. And you put on a live show every Sunday night, which is a lot like Saturday Night Live. And you have to write your own sketches and get your own costumes and direct it and stage it. And it's a lot of, it's so much fun, but so much pressure and work. Are you doing that over a week or how long do you have to? Yeah, yeah. You would have, we'd have a week. So we would have a workshop, I believe it was Wednesday nights and you would put on your sketches that you'd written for the director and you'd, we'd spend hours 
that night going through everybody's like pitched pitched their own sketches and the director would pick this this and this to be in the show that Sunday and so you'd have like Thursday to do rewrites and Friday to get your costumes and cast and then we'd have um rehearsal the rehearsal was really Sunday day and then we would do it Sunday night so you were it was trial by fire <laughs> and you you learned to be able to do the entire creative process and be responsible for all of it and do it quickly and which is such a gift and so rare uh it's actually a little bit like writing writing a book in some ways but anyhow it was it was fabulous it's it was a wonderful experience super high pressure but it taught me so much and anyhow so one night there was a scout and after the show i had no idea who he is no idea there was a scout in the audience and this guy comes up to me and gives me his card and i was like hello carrie I'm so and so from Saturday Night Live. Would you like to fly to New York and audition for Lauren Michaels? <laughs> and wow. I was like, yes, yes. Uh, but the the worst part is that he invited me and two other people to meet for drinks after the show to talk about, uh, you know, what he liked in the show. But I couldn't go because my director wanted, we had to get notes after the show. And I was so young and naive that I didn't realize, like, maybe I could skip notes. But I was like, no. We're supposed to do notes. I better be there. And by the time we got to the bar with the cast, like the guy was gone. And I thought, oh, my God, I just blew it. But indeed, he sent a plane ticket and a few of us went. Spoiler alert, I did not get cast on Saturday Night Live or that would be in my bio. But I did uh, get pulled aside by the TSA for having wigs and wig heads in my um, carry on uh, that looked like you know, <laughs> that I was um, but <laughs> you had uh, specific wigs just to try out different characters while you were auditioning for Lauren yeah, Michaels. Yeah, you had to bring. Um, I think it was a, b between I think three and five characters for the audition to audition, and so of course I brought my wigs. Like, girl needs her wigs for the characters, <laughs> and it's really a great. I mean, it's absolutely terrifying, but really cool. So they put you in the hair and makeup room like the real Saturday Night Live hair and makeup room, you wait in the real dressing rooms of real cast members for your turn to audition. Then they bring you down to hair and makeup. And what's really intimidating is that you can hear over the, the speaker in the room, the audition of the people going right before you. Oh and you my. hear if anyone's laughing or not. And Lauren Michaels is like extraordinarily tough and not a lot. He often doesn't laugh in auditions. Um, but Tina Fey was there, and she I remember her laughing at my audition. I was, like, so grateful to her uh, for being there because it's so terrifying. Oh, and Andy Samberg went audition literally right before me, and he was absolutely, just absolutely killing it. He was getting all kinds of laughs, but I got a few laughs, too. And uh, Andy Samberg. Oh, my God. <laughs> and he was on the plane with me, too. Uh, yeah, he was on the plane. He was a character. <laughs> but, um, but yeah. How long uh, does the audition last? Are we talking a couple of days? Just the one day? Well, just for that initial audition, it's like five minutes, maybe five or ten minutes tops. But you spend, they spend hours in the green room and you don't know when they're going to call you. So it's very, I wish I had known this. When I, when I auditioned, I was so green. I had never done a commercial. I had never done anything. Nothing on TV, no commercials. So I was really young. I, I hadn't really auditioned professionally. Um, so I was a little, I was just, you know, 
uh, improvising, but they leave you in the green for quite a while, hours. And I had no idea when someone was going to come. And it's so hard to keep your energy up. And um, I learned later from my friend Michaela Watkins, who who auditioned and did get on the show. She's she's a wonderful actor and and all kinds of things like casual and uh, and uh, the unicorn on CBS. She's a star of that. One of the stars. Anyhow, she said she meditated in the green room before the audition, which I wish I had like that. That was a smart idea. That would have been a cool idea. But anyway. Yeah, just block out that Sandberg audition and that makes sense. But I did get from that a lot of opportunities in the TV world in terms of both acting and writing. So I I was cast for a couple of episodes of Inside Amy Schumer, which I actually got because I had submitted a writing packet and she liked my writing packet. But I didn't, um, she'd already booked her writers for the show, but she cast me in a few episodes, which was really nice. And I got to do some fun characters. And I wrote for a show, an MTV2 show. And then Nickelodeon uh, came to the Groundlings and asked a couple of us to create a live show for their young up-and-coming talent, their kid talent, their teen tween talent. And it was was a lot like creating a Saturday Night Live type show where we wrote sketches for the kids and – taught them improv and I actually went to the Nickelodeon costume warehouse and picked out costumes for all of them. And we put on a live show for all the showrunners of Nickelodeon so that they could see this talent and how fun and funny they could be. Um, which was an incredibly fun creative experience for me. And I got experience working with kids, um, which which was which I loved. They're so wonderful. They're so up for anything. They're so willing to play. It, it was fantastic. And because I wrote that on that live show for a couple of years, um, a development person came to the shows and she um, she actually submitted me to write for a TV show on Nickelodeon. So I wrote for a couple of the, the um, they did these special variety shows. And I wrote for a couple of those specials, which was like a combination of all the cast members from various shows and we did a variety show and kind of they all got to come together and be in these. Um, we did like a Valentine special, a summer special. So, yeah. And <laughs> like, OK, everyone need, who needs a water break, bathroom break now. <laughs> yeah, we're doing great. It's a podcast. People are uh, in the bathroom as they're listening to us. They're good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think this is true of many writers and many creative people is that you had this winding road. It only makes sense later, certainly doesn't make sense as you're going down it, but the through line is storytelling, right? So that, I have done a gazillion different jobs, but the through line is storytelling. I'm always, I've always been trying to tell a story and like drag people in to listen to it, basically, <laughs> whatever form it is. Um, is so, that from childhood all the way on or? Yes. Oh my gosh. Um, I was always writing stories. I was always scripting plays. And I would round up my my younger sister, the neighborhood kids, and I was like, I was like a little, um, oh, the Tannenbaum, I'm forgetting her first name, uh, the Gwyneth Paltrow Tannenbaum girl, Margot Tannenbaum. Like I was putting on these neighborhood plays and forcing everyone to be in them, and entering like young author contests, and I founded a newspaper on my blog. Like I just probably insufferable, but but I went for it. Um, 
And and that newspaper paid off because I actually uh, ended up so. <sighs> After all the comedy writing, I, I was, I got, <laughs> this is so embarrassing, but I got cast as a dating correspondent on the Tyra Banks show, which was a talk show that it's obviously not on for many, many years. I but remember the Tyra Banks show. What, uh, what does a dating correspondent do? So I was to go, I was representing Los Angeles. There were four of us from different cities around the country and we were to go, we were the single girls going on dates and and keeping diaries and then coming back on the show to report our funny tales of, of dating. <laughs> it was, it, you know, it was very sex in the city. Um, although I don't know if I, it was, it was, a. Uh, <laughs> am I allowed to say that? I'm so sorry if I'm not. What's the word sex? Yeah, I think, I think the podcast is fixed to handle that word. All right, S-E-X in the city. And <laughs> now that I've called attention to it even more. Um, <laughs> but after the Tyra Banks show, dating correspondent, I, I got hired to be a dating correspondent and a writer at the New York Post. And then from there, I started just writing all kinds of funny features and covering, um, you know, Fashion, art, lifestyle trends, all the like hard hitting <laughs> new stuff. Um, and I went on to write, I would I freelance for the New York Times and The Atlantic and Architectural Digest. And again, it's just it's just telling stories. And the main often this focus of my journalism or my feature writing are the characters, right? The interesting people I get to interview. So I've kind of gone back and forth between comedy writing and journalism writing and performing and uh and we haven't even gotten to the books oh right you mean like horse girl which is available tuesday for uh, esteemed audience listening today or if you're listening in the future esteemed audience and it's as well past march 30th good news the book's already available go check out uh, horse girl by carrie son yes thank you thank you we're already yeah we're in the we can time travel on the show i love it um, but yeah, so my, so my editor of Horse Girl actually found me in a canoe of all places. So I was visiting a, a mutual friend who had built this amazing wooden canoe. He's actually author, also an author, Trent Pressler, but he had built this amazing canoe and he invited a few friends to take it out for a spin for a little paddle on the Long Island Sound. And his other friend, Carl, came. And I'd never met Carl before, but it turned out that Carl was a children's book editor for Penguin Random House. And he found out that I had written for Nickelodeon and was in the Groundlings. And he said, oh, my gosh, I need a funny story for girls. Do you think you want to write a book? And I was sort of like, I don't know. I haven't even thought about that. And but yes. Right. Who's going to say no to that? This is like who meets their editor in a canoe? This is kismet. This is destiny. Um, and Carl and I ended had you up thought about, uh, sorry to, to kill the moment, had you thought about writing a book prior to this or was it just that it, moment in the canoe? Now is the time. I, I mean, I had thought about it in terms of more of a funny dating essay book a while back. I'd never considered, I hadn't considered a lot of uh, fiction per se, and especially not for, for kids or for middle grade. I wasn't but then, you know, I had been writing for kids for TV, so it, it suddenly was like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I really relate. Like, I feel like I'm still an awkward tween, you know, in many ways. I, 
I'm still, I can really uh, tap that side of myself. So, um, and then, yeah, and Carl was from Oklahoma, is from Oklahoma and I'm from Nebraska and we started talking about horses and then it was just like, horse girl, this is going to be it. And I had no idea what the story was going to be, but I knew we were going to do a horse girl, a horse girl book. That must have been some kind of wild canoe ride. <laughs> it was. I mean, beware invitations to wooden canoes. <laughs> <laughs> so there is just a whole lot to, to unpack there because your 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 resume is tremendous. Uh, and I want to I, I want to talk a little bit about everything. Um, but I suppose we should start with Horse Girl. So there's no doubt in our minds that we definitely uh, talked about Horse Girl, which I enjoyed very much. Oh, uh, I promised uh, I never I never uh, uh, summarize other people's books. So if you would uh, give us kind of just the overview, what do we need to know about Horse Girl to understand, to, 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 to add it to our, uh, our digital cart right now and make sure we're securing that purchase while we're listening? Absolutely. So I like to describe Horse Girl as Black Beauty meets Mean Girls. And like, you know, like any real Horse Girl, the book is funny and awkward and it has a lot of heart. Um, it tells the story of a seventh grader named Willa, who uh, goes by Wills, and she is absolutely horse crazy. And she's, she's sort of misunderstood, and she's a bit of an outsider, and she really struggles with making friends of the human variety, um, which I think is something that we can all relate to at different in, at some point in our life, that it's hard to make friends and feel like you fit in. And Willa's really searching for her forever herd, is what we call it in the book, that place that she fits in. Um, and and her, her mom is in the Air Force, so they move around a lot, and they end up, the family ends up moving to uh -huh. and her parents finally finally let her agree to let her take horseback riding lessons for the first time so this is the first time she's actually going to be around real horses she's absolutely thrilled like best day of her life um but when she gets to the stable the first person she encounters is a girl named amara who is the self-appointed queen of the horse girls and she is less than welcoming she's a bit of a mean girl and Willa gets paired with this elderly rescue horse named Clyde Lee, who is a Clydesdale thoroughbred gentle giant who she just loves because she feels too big for her body. And this horse is a really big horse and they just seem to match. But he has no interest in doing anything Willow asks of him. He's sort of over jumping and like he, he, maybe he'll stop, maybe he won't. So on her, one of her first days of lessons, um, he kind of goes rogue and stops short of a jump and she ends up tumbling off and falling and embarrassing herself and her dad's making awkward dad jokes in the stands and uh, hijinks kind of ensue from there. I love the uh, description of the Clydesdale as having medium pizza-sized hoofs. That might be one of the most vivid descriptions I've ever read. But yes, I can see that perfectly. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's hard to get an idea of just how, you know, the size, the perspective of, of a Clydesdale. And so a medium pizza hoof is like, that's serious business. And Willa... Like stop Willa, by and you see a little uh, glass of water with rings in it, I'm sure, every time that Clydesdale comes near. <laughs> yeah, and Willa is... Uh, she often uses snacks as her metaphors. She's she's really snack motivated, as are the horses. 
Are you snack motivated? Or yes. Is that specific for the character? <laughs> yes, yes. It's the only way I like write a paragraph is if I know there's a snack at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> We're definitely going to talk more about that. <laughs> I am yeah, fascinated but... by motivations for, for writing. Uh, a but, paragraph um, per snack. All I mean, there's a lot of paragraphs in this book. They could they couldn't have all ended. But no, no, but <laughs> as many as possible. <laughs> but yeah, the story is really about facing uh, a girl facing obstacles, whether they're the literal, you know, horse jumps or the metaphoric obstacles of fear and and change and life changing and uh, trying to stay true to herself during that tipping point of life when it's suddenly like not so cool to be passionate or interested in anything. In fact, it's cool to be not interested. And Willa as a horse girl is unapologetically like passionate about horses and she doesn't want to give up that part of herself. So, um, who who, uh, is the ideal reader for the story? So the the ideal reader are tweens who love horses, but actually anyone anyone who loves horses of any age, and anyone who's interested in a, a good friendship story, which which is one of my favorite parts about middle grade is that we we rarely get um, good friendship stories in mainstream culture. Um, there's often so much romantic love or violence, and just focused on this platonic friendship story. Um, I really treasure. Uh, but horse girl books are, you know, they're part of our long literary canon. And so I think uh, kids will enjoy it in the sort of maybe 8 to 13, 14 range, but also nostalgic adults and, you know, parents and teachers hopefully will enjoy it too, because it's, it, it's a real touchstone for and really inspired by many of the classic horse books like like Black Beauty and Misty of Chincoteague and uh, King of the Wind. It's just that I sort of wanted to add a humor to balance out the earnestness of those books and sort of a modern voice and and modern um, complications. So were you were you a horse girl as, uh, back in Nebraska? Did you ride horses? Well, I was definitely a horse girl. I was definitely horse crazy. My sister Lindsay and I were obsessed with horses, um, but we did not. And this is the important, an important uh, distinction for horse girls is that you do not have to own a horse or ride a horse or even have ever seen a horse to be a horse girl. It is, it is a strong interior, uh, like vivid life. Maybe you're like awkward on the outside, but in your interior life is just like just banging it's killing it right so we we didn't have any horses but we read all of the books that i just mentioned we my sister had um briar horses she collected them here i have a little visual aid these like model horses this is one of her actual ones that we dug out of the attic um and it's show and tell okay so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and we would watch the Olympic equestrian events that when they came on like every four years and we would like furiously tape them on VHS and then play that VHS tape like over and over and over so we could watch them. We created fake, like we took broomsticks and laundry baskets and created jumping courses in our backyard for the dog. Um, we were totally obsessed. 
And our big mission was to convince our parents to let us go to horse camp one summer. And we did like a charts and presentations about why this is good for us. And we, our parents finally relented. They let us go to horse camp, which was not fancy at all. It was just like this YMCA camp in Nebraska that had one hour a day of horses. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> the best we were going to get. Well, then they have a nice pool. <laughs> some some kickball, something else uh, between the the horse ball. Exactly, like like it was like all right, we'll throw your kids a bone, like one hour a day. Um, and <laughs> this is where I discovered my tragic allergy to horses. Oh no! Ah, so yes, yeah, so I it turned out this was pre Claritin. I didn't have access to Benadryl, and I just was like a machine gun of sneezes, like. And the poor horses, like, I'm sneezing, and my eyes are watering. And so after camp, my sister got to continue taking horseback riding lessons. I got plopped into piano lessons. Uh, but I would go and watch my sister during her lessons, and I would do my homework in the stands. And so, you know, a lot of this book is an homage to her, and a lot of the stories uh, the, so the horse tagonist in the book is based on a real horse that she would ride at the stable named Clyde Lee. And the stories a lot are things that actually happened to her that she remembers or that I remember watching. And she was very generous about sharing a lot of details and memories. Um, so it's a very it's a very personal story to our family. And um, if you read the book, there's kind of a there's a big sister character who isn't always the nicest. And she's modeled like I made myself the villain uh because she, <laughs> she likes you know she's allergic to horses and you know an antithesis of a horse girl so trying to find a passage here quickly because that immediately sparked uh my my memory uh and i of course i can't find it because i'm looking at an electronic book instead of a paperback oh, you know what Let oh, me Oh, you got it. You got it. Okay. Um, the only thing Kay and I agree on is breakfast for dinner. She likes geology and geometry and school and homework and trivia and deadlines and show choir and the mythology of Norse gods and irrational numbers and Spanish verbs and snowflake fractals. I like horses. I love that passage. I love that 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 stinger there at the end. I like horses. This is the, the sharp contrast. So is that? Is that you? You're you're K. You like uh, geometry in school and Norse gods. Yes, I mean that was that was me, and I'm really poking fun at myself. But yeah, I was really <laughs> the nerd. You know, the I was on quiz bowl and academic decathlon and you know piano and all that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, I embraced that side of myself. Um, and then I remember my sister was just she was just singularly at that time focused on horses. And how what like how empowering is that to say, this is what I'm going to do, and I don't like I'm not sorry for it, and I'm going to own it, and I'm going to hang out with these really powerful, strong creatures, and literally elevate myself. Um, I think it's like like horse girl energy is is a really good um, it's like a good recipe for being an adult success, right? Taking control, taking taking charge, and doing what's important to you no matter what other people think. Makes sense to me. 
And it occurs to me I should uh, point out for esteemed audience who's thinking, uh, my God, how am I ever going to get in the right wooden canoe uh, with the most perfect editor ever? Um, that although that, you know, what, what an extraordinary circumstance. You had experience. Uh, you've been published, what, in, in McSweeney's and the New York Post, the New York Times, in the Atlantic, Cosmopolitan. You were a firmly established writer. Plus, you've been a dating columnist prior to that, right? Yeah, I, I mean that—that's true. That I had already done the work to prove to prove myself, and I had written a lot of different kinds of things. And I think, especially because I had written sketches and in the comedy world, that since they wanted a comedy book, and by the way, I still had to write—you know—I had still had to write sample chapters for them to buy the book. They didn't just, you know, hire me and hope for the best. Um, and I was like, oh, I don't know, should I? should I bother writing this? And I'm so like a sample chapter because I'd never, I'd never written, um, you know, a book chapter before, but I'm so glad I did it. But, and I came, I approached it the, the way that I would a sketch or a story, which is that this it's really focused on the characters and the dialogue. Um, and then I had to kind of learn to, vary the rhythm and the pace and have slow down moments that weren't just action packed, action packed. Like a, a sketch has to be really quick and really condensed and you, you have no time to waste. Whereas a book, you have this wonderful opportunity to reflect, to have, to show off the inner life, to show the quiet moments and the fast, exciting moments. So, okay. So the, the canoe happens, you and, and Carl Jones talk over your shared memories of, of horses and so how, how far do you get on that initial meeting? Do you, are you plotting the book at that point? Or is it just horse girl go and then you have to plot it out after the fact? Yeah, I had to plot it out after, after the fact. And to be honest, at first I just thought, well, this was a fun canoe ride. Nothing's ever going to, like, I'll probably never hear from that guy again, you know. And, and he did follow up, but it, it was kind of like we didn't really get to the actual writing part for months later. Um, and then, yeah, I had to come up with the whole thing myself, which which uh, I really had to reflect back on on those times with my sister writing. And um, I taught I read a lot of horse books. I did a ton of research. I talked to trainers. I talked to veterinarians and um, I really had to figure out what what would the story be? Um, and I wanted to approach it since I wasn't like, obviously I'm not a professional writer and I'm not completely immersed in, in the grown up horse world. So I wanted to tell a story that would stand up outside of the horse element. I just read this wonderful thread um, from a screenwriter, uh, Brian Edward Hill. And he, t he talks about genre writing. And he said to be successful in genre writing, you have to approach it like it's just a good dramatic movie or story or TV show or whatever. And then it, that dramatic story encounters the genre elements in act one that add to it and make it fun and rich and detail, but it needs to stand up on its own without the genre elements. And I think that's, oh, I was like, oh my God, that's, that's so, cr I wish I had known that at the beginning. I think I got to that place, right? I definitely got to that place, but um, it's such an important lesson and uh, yeah, so, so, so for me, I really loved writing the sister relationship, writing Willa's mom is, is stationed overseas as an Air Force pilot and Willa's really missing her mom. 
and those human emotional elements and also the the comic relief elements you know those are things of of being a tween and making mistakes and being awkward i wanted to make sure we had all of those elements so it would hold up for people for anybody not just horse lovers and one thing i did in the book which we decided was um carl's idea to we might need to explain some of the equestrian terms to people who aren't really familiar so um i i think i came up with the name hoof notes instead of footnotes so every chapter has these cute little hoof notes that explain uh you know some of the horse terms and with you know in a cheeky way um and i think i think th those have been kind of popular with the early readers so that made me happy um but yeah i wanted it to be a complete story on its own with some really fun horse elements I really love those, uh, lots of things, but I really love those hoof notes because one is just, it's, a, it's consistently a way for you to fit in some extra jokes uh, that without impacting the direct drama because it's, it's not part of the story. The other thing I thought as I, I was reading it is, oh, think of all the young readers who haven't encountered footnotes before and look at you preparing them to go on towards scholarly excellence. I didn't even think of that. Wow, you're right. You're right. Absolutely. Well, there we go. It's going to be a, a solid uptick, uh, uptick in academic writing across this great nation of ours once uh, Horse Girl is available and, and widely read. <laughs> I'm just doing my part, doing my part for academia. I'm glad that their first experience with footnotes will be, you know, a fun one instead of a terrifying one, which is <laughs> how I recall it. So, um, how long does it take you to write Horse Girl then? Okay, this is sort. This is an interesting story because I, I would say I spent. Gosh, let me let me go through the timeline. I I was started writing it and I wrote about half of it for for over a course of maybe like four months or so, and then and I was doing my full time um, journalism writing at the same time, so I'd write on nights and weekends, and then I had the opportunity. Um, I was invited to become a writer for Audible. They were putting together a kids writers room and actually the editor there had had gotten a sample chapter of horse girl and um, that's how she kind of discovered me and that writers room the idea so audible has you know creates these audible originals which which are just made to be listened to they're not book form and we were we were putting together with four writers that Perhaps we'd work collaboratively on four projects, or perhaps we'd each work on our own. And it ended up that we'd each, we decided we'd each work on our own because it just logistically was too difficult. We couldn't all be in the same place every day. So I, my project that I pitched is called The Flying Flamingo Sisters. And it's sort of done as an old timey radio play set in the 1930s. And I'll tell you all about that. But the deal with Audible was that they they needed it done quickly and so i was able to sort of i still had time to finish horse girl based on that contract so i paused in the middle i wrote the flying flamingo sisters in about four four or five months and then i had to go back and finish horse girl uh which i guess so i, I guess i did them both in roughly like just over a year which anyway i just don't recommend like never it was really, really hard for me to stop in the middle and then and then go back and finish. Like, 
that was one of the hardest, <laughs> the hardest things I've ever done. And I, and I didn't have the strongest outline for Horse Girl, which is a lesson I learned. And Flying Flamingo Sisters, I had the most detailed outline anyone's ever written. Like, it was just so specific. And that's what I realized. Now, from now on, I will just be the, I'm going to be a super detailed outliner because I was facing the second half of the book and I hadn't, I was like, I don't know what's supposed to happen. Somebody help me. Like, I don't know. Um, but I figured it out, you know, I stuck with it. I had a deadline I respect deadlines and I have had a great little circle of writer, of writer friends and family who didn't let me give up. And that was so crucial. I think it's so crucial as an author, especially a new author to have a very small supportive team that will keep you going on those days you do not want to keep going, you know? So are these people uh, providing feedback as you go or just encouraging messages to somebody you can reach out to and say, hey, tell me I, I'm, I'm good and I can write? It's a mix of both. So um, my, my parents are both retired teachers. So they have read everything I've ever written and like proofread it. And um, they're my first and most supportive audience. So if I have a new chapter... When it's ready, when I think it's ready, I'll send it to them. But then I have another great friend and frequent collaborator named Brian Clark. We met at the Groundlings, and he writes for a lot of preschool TV shows. And he, you know, he's my, he, he helps, we help each other. We edit each other's work. We give each other notes. We, we, we talk through the story together. And, um, you know. Um, and then I'm lucky to have my sister and other other friends who can just provide support and also story ideas. So yeah, I'm very lucky. I have I'm very lucky to have such a good team that can actually do hands-on help with the writing and also the emotional side, which is very important too. Out of curiosity, what uh, do your parents teach? So my mom started out as a children's librarian, and she taught art. And then she ran the gifted program for the school district in Nebraska. And my dad taught science. Oh, that's everything you need right there. That's I got, I got everything. I got everything. You and got then an uncle that's a historian and an aunt that, that handles uh, advanced physics and math. And you're, you're set. <laughs> I've got both sides of the brain in my household. So, um, okay, so uh, Horse Girl, you, you've got this big break there in the middle and you learn to outline, which is amusing to me, that, that you start off in the Groundlings and Improvisational Theater. And then, of course, you learn to, to, to put on a show quickly over the course of a week. But now you're, you're strictly, you're, you're a pantser, it sounds like, all the way. Yeah, I mean, I had to, yeah, now I know, like... I'm uh, sorry, a plotter, not a pantser. A plotter, yeah, I was, I, you know, I started off with the hubris, because that's how, when you're writing improv, you know, you just listen and make it up and build and build and build. But with a book, I have found that I'm definitely, I definitely need to be a plotter. And I'd like to, you're gonna have to go through the struggle of the story, either at some point, one way or the other. And I'd rather get that, figure that out, go through the struggle at the beginning. And then when I'm writing, have the freedom to just play and if something needs to change great but but um i just if i don't know i can pull up my outline and say okay this is this is what needs to happen let's do it and it, it gives me great comfort to have to have a plan 
Is that and when you're I doing albums, do you, do you plan those in advance as well? What's that? Sorry, can you uh, when you yeah, with Skype we get just a little bit of overlap, which is occasionally frustrating, but otherwise wonderful. Uh, thank you, good people of Skype. You're, you're doing great. Um, when uh, when you do your columns, is that also true that you 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 make a firm plan for how you're going to uh, write those? Yeah, I when I'm writing when I'm writing articles, if I'm interviewing someone. What I love to do, I am very dialogue driven, so I get all the quotes together and I sort of, I often think about it as that I'm weaving the story through the quotes. Um, and, but I don't know till, till the end how it's going to, I rarely know till the end how it's all going to come together until I've gotten all the quotes from all the people I want to talk to. Um, when I'm writing columns, sometimes there'll be an anecdote that, that pops out that I know I want to start with. And sometimes I have to figure out after, but there's it's when you're writing a thousand or 2000 word article or, or even a 500 word, you know, you don't have, there's not a lot of like plotting, planning. You're doing it pretty quickly. It's fine. Novel, different story. So, um, what does your, how does your writing process differ than is, are you still, uh, are you still kind of improving and acting things out a little bit? I assume this this has to be very different from Flamingo Sisters, which we'll we'll get to since you're writing a, an actual performance. But when you're writing something that's that's going to be read, are you reading it out loud? Are you performing the characters, or are you just writing it? How, what's your process? Yeah, I'm definitely. I definitely will read the dialogue out loud. Um, um, I'm. I, I. I don't. I don't have to say it out loud before I write it down. I can. I can write directly from my mind. But then, I will definitely read it out loud to make sure that it sounds authentic and that the character voices are different and that everybody doesn't sound exactly the same. Um, and I also there was a something I learned early on in in, in a Groundlings writing class. There was an exercise we would do. Which was just, you know, and this is off, this is similar to morning pages, but there would be a writing prompt and you were just meant to write without judgment, without crossing out. Um, or the, or we do 10 jokes. Like if you get stuck, you just have to write a list of 10 jokes. Don't stop, don't stop, go, go, go. Or like 10 types of cereal or whatever it was just to free your brain up. And so when I'm, when I'm writing a book, a section, a chapter, a passage, I, and I get stuck, I, it helps to just say, okay, you're going to write something down. Just write something. We're not going to judge. Let's get it out and see what tumbles out of there. Um, you have to start somewhere. And sometimes that's a great way to do it. It's like just dumping whatever comes out onto the page and then finding that, oh, that's the piece of gold. I'm going to run with that. Um, but you can't write and judge at the same time, even though I, we, I mean, you can because I do it all the time, but it's not <laughs> beneficial. Yeah, no, I do it too, but I, I agree with you. In an ideal world, I wouldn't. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's so easy to say. That's not true. I, I, I go for very long stretches where I'm able to pull it off. That's good. But Isn't not, but not yet indefinitely. I, I aspire to one day that will be the, the, the plan. But it's such fun when you find scenes like that. You know, where it's just, oh, I can't wait to write this. Oh, this is going to be so fun. I can't wait to just get this all out. I, the, those moments are so, that's what makes it worth it, right? So I remember the, 
the, one of the chapters I, I love, I really loved writing the first chapter of Horse Girl, but there's a later chapter about a Halloween parade. And I was just where the kids dress up their horses in elaborate costumes. And there's all kinds of like wardrobe malfunctions and crazy things happen. And I was just so excited to write that chapter. It was really, it was really fun. It was almost like a special episode of a TV show, like right in the middle of the book. Um, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the I Halloween episode. I love it. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so yes, uh, I've become more disciplined because of because of uh, book writing, for sure, in terms of outlining and planning. So, what does your your what does a successful writing day look like? Because I know you're writing other things while you're working on 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 Horse Girl and, and the Flamingo Sisters. What's a successful day look like? When do you get started? How do you know you've had a good day? Um, well, I, it really varies. So if I'm doing, if I have some article writing or journalism editing to do, I, I would be doing that, um, during, during the day, during the weekdays and then writing at night and weekends. But as of late, I've had more time to do my fiction writing. And so in that case, I would prefer to write in the morning if I can. And I have a certain word count that I'll want to get through for that day. It really it can completely vary. Um, and then then I like to take a I'll take a nice lunch break, snack break. Um, but then I like to pause and then maybe come back to it in the evening. But sometimes I feel like I have a little my mind gets a little freer when I'm a little tired or after I've had a break from the day and I'll move my laptop, go to a different area of the apartment or the house and and then let myself be a little looser at night and then um, and then come back in the morning go through what I've written, see if I can stand any of it or if I'm happy with it and then, and then keep going. But I, for my, when I was doing both of these books, I definitely had like a word count a day and I had to stick to it and I had to get like, this week would be this chapter. And I would try to get it to a pretty good polish, like I, not completely polished, but I would have done a, a several rounds of revisions before I'd move on to the next chapter um so yeah i don't know if i can keep up that same i don't know i don't think two books in a year is ever gonna happen again but um once was enough and uh yeah <laughs> um no i think that you've got now tremendous writing muscles that are, as a result of this incredible uh year of writing uh so next year why not three <laughs> we'll see <laughs> It has uh, has quarantine for COVID nineteen impacted how you do your writing, or has that made more time available for you to write even more than you would have? You know, you would think that there would have there probably was more time, but I didn't feel like I got. I mean, I didn't feel like I got a. I I wasn't able to concentrate in as long of a chunks. It was just. It was just, there's a writer, Danny Shapiro, who's just a wonderful writer and great. Uh, she writes books about writing and as well as memoir. And she she just posted something about like writing now. It's like looking at the sun. You can only look for a few minutes. It's just really hard to stay, to stay focused. And I've really been feeling that um, where I have, I have written things and finished things, but it's, it's the struggle to focus has been a challenge. And then on top of that, for the last several months, I'm gearing up for the for the launch of Horse Girl, which obviously like everything has to be done remotely, and so that's been 
taking up a lot of my time so that I can think of creative ways to get the book in the world. As you know, you know, it's, it's a, and I was so hopeful. I was so naive a year ago. I was like, oh, the bookstores are going to be open. Like everything's going to be fine. We're going to have a party. Um, oh, oh, so naive. I wish it were so. I like your vision of the future. <laughs> Me too. Um, but we're hopeful that this August, two other horse book writers, writers and I are going to get together and do a barn party outside in August. So, so we'll get to do like a, a little delayed book party. And when you get to have, when you, when you have your Claritin with you, can you go and ride horses again? Yeah, yes, yes. So I've done some trail rides. I love horses. I love um, one of my goals for the year after the after my pub date after March is to take some lessons and really get back into it. But yeah, and I have clarity. Freedom. So, yeah. <laughs> well, um, I'm trying to think. Uh, well, you know, let's talk a little bit about uh, marketing in the in the time of COVID uh, for all those authors listening that desperately need uh, your your tips and advice. Or aside from coming on this show, which obviously that's a no-brainer, um, but what other uh, uh, things are you? Uh, what other opportunities are you finding to get your get you and your book out there? Well, it's definitely a challenge. First of all, I I you came highly recommended from several writers, so I was this is such an honor because I two different people said, "Oh my God, you have middle grade ninja, middle grade ninja." So, and this is my um, two. This I didn't my, know I had that many listeners. Fantastic. You do, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, so this is my, even though Flying Flamingo's Sisters came out at the very end of December 2019, it was an audiobook, so I couldn't promote it exactly the way you would a physical book. And so this is my first real physical book launch. Um, and now this is sort of a challenging way, but I learned from when I was doing marketing for Flying Flamingo Sisters, how to be creative, how to reach out to to writers who, uh, to journalists who had covered either the children's space or audiobooks or might be interested. And I've learned um, that you can also, you know, you have to do work if you are going to pitch, if you are going to ask someone to spend time writing about you to help them to say like, what, what would make, well, why would this be interesting? Um, is it a roundup of horse books, for example, or is it, um, a flying magazine that might be interested in this Flying Flamingo Sisters because it's a, it's based on a true story about my grandfather. What are the different ways? So you have to be creative and you have to think about 10 different ways to pitch your book depending on the audience and how it might fit. Um, the other thing I have, I did, and I really like, I'm just doing my best. I'm just trying to read what I can and, and uh, try different things and experiment. So I have seen other writers who did some sort of giveaway or bonus gift for pre-orders if you would screen grab the, the receipt. And I did a promotion like that just with my, my social media following and my friends and family. And it, it was such a great motivator because I know all my friends, like they want to buy the book, but maybe they just clicking, clicking buy, which you should click buy, but um, clicking buy is, you know, it's just that extra step. So what I offered were these cute little um, trading pins that have the horse girl book cover on them. And that was really, it was such a 
small thing, but it was such a big motivator. And I did it right before the holidays. Um, so that was a big push. And then I reached out to horse magazines. So, you know, I picked my genre and I reached out to those places first. And then from there, we're building to more mainstream media outlets. Um, but using that interest, like, oh, this is a thing, you know, and this, this is how the other thing you need, really need to focus on, I found, is tying your book in to a greater cultural landscape or a news peg or whatever it might be. So um, I'm spending a lot of time talking about the horse girl renaissance because there are a lot of other horse books and there's Black Beauty was just remade by Disney Plus and talking about why horse girls are so relevant during the pandemic because we're all longing for that unconditional love and that tactile comfort that comes from, from horses. And you're just like Chrissy Teigen became a horse girl this week and all of those things become part of my pitches. So I would say whatever your book topic is like pay attention to what's happening like put yourself in the journalist's shoes what would make them what is interesting to them about this how could you help them tell your story okay so okay um and also we're, we're doing a lot of um we're doing a lot of virtual bookstore visits, uh, school visits, library visits. So as you can tell, I, you know, I love talking to people. I love chatting. So I basically told everyone, you know, put me in coach, I'll go anywhere I'll do. I'm up for anything. So I think that's really important. The more people you can connect, then they become fans and they tell their friends. And, you know, it's it's been really um, it's, it's been, uh, I'm learning as I go, but I'm having so much fun doing it. Well, I know I'm talking to you just ahead of launch, uh, which is, is Tuesday, esteemed audience, uh, get your pre-order in, there's still time, or if you're listening to us in the future, just get it. It's available. It's, it's first girl time. Um, but have you at this point had, uh, early reader reactions? Yes. Well, I'm so, I feel so lucky because I've gotten some incredible blurbs from um, from Jane Smiley, who is the Pulitzer Prize winner of A Thousand Acres, and she's written all kinds of wonderful horse books. She had a new book come out, um, an adult book, like a fairy tale, an adult fairy tale, which is so beautiful. It's called Perestroika in Paris. Um, so Jane Smiley wrote, and she, I, I'm, I'm told she, she just rarely writes blurbs but she wrote this beautiful one for me. And I was just, I was just so touched. Um, and I got blur a blurb from Matthew Aldrich, who is the screenwriter of Coco. And he just, he wrote one of my the favorite, my favorite things about it. So, um, and Sarah Mas Maslin Neer, who uh, is a, she has her own book called Horse Crazy. Um, and she and I are gonna collaborate on a, the barn party. Um, and I got Soledad O'Brien, and I got Dana Gould, who's a Simpsons writer, and all these people. It's so generous. I, I think to myself, my goodness, these people have so much on their plates. They have so many demands out of them, and that they would take the time to read the book, or at least part of the book, and sit down and write something thoughtful, like, my goodness, the generosity. I'm just blown away. I'm so blown away. Um, so that was great. And, and yeah, I've been getting 
uh, uh, so many, you know, so much excitement. The er my early readers, of course, you know, are very encouraging, and uh, I can't wait for. I just can't wait for people for people to read it, especially kids, like the the tween, the middle grade readers. That's what I cannot wait for. Well, I I never know. Uh, maybe maybe we'll cut this out. I never know whether this is an appropriate question or not. But if I I would love a quote uh, blurb from Silver O'Brien. That sounds really nice, Dana Gould. That sounds amazing. Is that something where you went out and you approached them, or did someone do that on your behalf? Um, and and in I want to say five out of six or all but one, I approached them. So I just you know I reached out to I. Let's see. I, a lot of people like Sarah, I found on Twitter and I just, one of the best things you can do is actually buy that person's book, read that person's book, compliment them on something specific about it. You know, tell them why you like it, tell them why they should care about you um, and your book. Um, I, I guess it's, it's hard to say, but yeah, I reach out to everyone now. It probably helps, and I don't know that we want to keep this in, but it probably helps that, you know, I have, I, um, my pre, well, maybe we can keep, whatever. My previous book was a bestseller, Flying Flamingo Sisters. So it was an audible fiction bestseller for four weeks. So that gave me a platform to reach out. And I've written for a lot of notable publications. So that was a way to say, hey, you know, take me, you know, just take a chance on reading it. You don't. You don't have to write a blur, but like maybe that made motivated them based on my um, previous platforms to at least be willing to glance at the manuscript. Why would we take that out? You work hard uh, and you're reaping the benefits of that hard work. That absolutely makes sense. <laughs> well, then leave it in. Fine. I want to talk about uh, the Flying Flamingo Sisters, which I absolutely enjoyed uh, just this afternoon. Uh, Horse Girl was my, my weekend reading, and then this afternoon it was a uh, time for, uh, I was like, oh, you know what? I've got the Flying Flamingos right here on the old phone. Let's let's give that a listen. Uh, so uh, my son and I were building a, a, a marble toy together, and we just had that going. And, oh, what, what wonderful, something uh, wonderful to, to entertain us while we build this uh, marble contraption for him to, to roll the marbles around. Before we move on, though, I, I like to extend this opportunity because I always try to do this show as if I were on a, an author podcast, what would I like to be asked? And is there a question that I haven't asked that some that no one's asked about horse squirrel that you wish someone would because you'd love to answer it? Uh, and that's just kind of your it's, it's like a, a, a free free blank check. Whatever question you like, let's pretend I ask it, but you go ahead and ask it. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. You asked me so many good questions. I don't, I'm trying to, let me think. Oh, you know, you know what? Um, if you wanted to, that we have, that I haven't really talked too much about is that I recorded the audiobook for Horse Girl. Um, and I, <laughs> and I was very, I had to audition to record the, to narrate the book. And I had, I have, was, I previously narrated the Flying Flamingo Sisters, but only as one character, one of the three sisters, because it was a multicast project. And Worst Girl, they I was hoping that maybe we could record it as a multicast project when I auditioned, but they said, no, it should just be one narrator. But they once I auditioned that they cast me, which was really thrilling. 
And that Amberg, who had also auditioned, which is crushed, I imagine. <laughs> Take that, Andy. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, it's so true. Sorry, Andy. Horse girl's mine. Um, but anyhow, the moment they cast me was the moment I realized that I had to create 15 character voices. <laughs> and but because, you know, there are, there are 15 or more characters in the book. And I wanted, you know, I wanted to make them distinct. Uh, and I've done voiceover for commercials and TV shows, but you get to, you know, you're usually just doing one character, or if you're going to do two, you kind of do all of one voice and then the other. But when you're narrating an audiobook, you've got to be able to switch between them. And I realized that several of my scenes have like a dozen characters all, you know, talking at some time, some point in the chapter and talking to each other. And I was cursing myself, like, why would you, who wrote this thing? What do you think I am? A voice machine? Um, so, so it was it was incredibly challenging. One of the hardest things that I've done, just in terms of switching between the voices and keeping them on point. And I, maybe I, you know, I'm sure I failed. Like like Willa the horse girl, I'm sure I like fell on my face many times. But I gave it my all, and I jumped hard. And I'm, you know, I'm really proud that I did a whole book. When you're uh, narrating an audiobook, um, I assume you've got, you know, you've got an, uh, an engineer cutting it together nicely for you. I, I, I'm throwing that term out like I know what I'm talking about. Somebody definitely edits the book uh, and edits all that audio. So are you able to take a pause between characters and maybe like put on one of those wigs that you, you had from <laughs> way back when if you need to, to, to really get into the, the spirit? Oh, man, I wish I had those wigs. That would have been, that was what I was missing. So I'd only had my wigs. Um, but yes, they, I had a director and I had a post studio, uh, like a post-production studio. So every day, Scott Sherratt was my director, or Scott Sherratt, sorry, was my director. He's amazing. He's directed, oh my God, like everyone, Mindy Kaling and um, uh, Nelson Mandela and Malala and just he's she's directed everyone you could even imagine their audiobooks so he's a total pro um, because of the pandemic I couldn't go into the studio to record I had to record in my closet at home and um, I already had purchased some gear because I was doing some narrating work for audible um, and anyway so Scott would be on zoom or facetime or whatever and he would we would set up the audio interface so he and his headphones could hear what was coming through my microphone um, and he could give me notes. And yes, you can pause. I, I paused and stumbled and anytime you, um, we did what's called a, a straight record, which is wonderful because if you mess up, you just stop and start over and do it again. You don't have to like go back. There's another technique called, um, oh gosh, I think it's called punch and roll. I might have that wrong, but where if you make a mistake, you have to go back in and they sort of edit as they go and you gotta like just jump in with that word that you messed up and then they'll they'll edit it in as they go. And that's very difficult. But a straight record is much easier. And yeah, if I messed up the voice, I would just, I would do some lines like those poor engineers, they hate me because I would do it like 10 times. Um, <laughs> I got it's just you putting on wigs. This is getting weird. I know, right? <laughs> I know some. I feel so bad. Someone like is definitely 
I made an enemy, let's just say. <laughs> no, because I'm sure the, the final product is incredible and they're, they're pleased to have been a part of it and it makes up for, for anything that went along the way, I'm sure. <laughs> had you had, had you narrated full audio? I knew, obviously, you were in the Flying Flamingo Sisters. Had you narrated full audio books prior to yours? Well, I had done, I had recorded uh, books for the blind in L.A. as a volunteer project year when I first moved to LA I didn't have I didn't know anyone I didn't have any friends and I spent a lot of Saturdays going into a little booth in Hollywood and recording textbooks for the blind so I had done that but I mean no one was really checking my it was kind of honor system you know if you got <laughs> the books right there wasn't you were you were recording yourself and doing all the production yourself so I had done that I had done voiceover for commercials I you know like I played a chicken McNugget for McDonald's and um I had done some oh, voiceover your line is a chicken McNugget <laughs> she was like totally you guys I want some barbecue sauce um and I saw you had also played once a sassy pickle is that correct oh yeah 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 so yeah I've you know I have a full range of snack food voices <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I never, I hadn't done, um, so the first, uh, oh, oh yeah. And I've, that's not true. So when I went into audition for flying flamingo sisters, after I'd written what the made book, you audition after you oh. wrote the whole thing for everybody else. Oh yeah. Yeah. They had to. And, and by the way, they're really like, you know, just authors, we don't usually cast them. So don't get your hopes up. And you know, and I kept saying, no pressure, you know, just give me a chance, just give me a chance. And I auditioned and, and it went really well. And they were like, well, what character would you like to play? Um, so it was very exciting. It was the opposite of Lauren Michaels. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but she, right on the spot was like, what character do you think you should play? So that was really, really exciting. And to help me prepare to uh before flying flamingo sisters they gave me another a nonfiction book to record um called how to write a book or some i think it's called how to write a book um how to write a book book it's a longer title than that i'm sorry but that's how it starts and then i did character voices in a, like an rl stein uh, multicast project and uh then i did flying flamingo sisters playing the youngest sister, Franny Flamingo. So you had already written it before you knew you were going to play Franny. The <laughs> and flag it, flicker, am I remembering that right, Franny, the flag flicker? Yes! Yes, she, Franny's still trying to find the Flamingo sisters. There are three Flamingo <laughs> sisters. Uh, Faye, sorry, Flo, Faye, and Franny. And Flo is an incredible ace pilot, and Faye is an ace mechanic slash navigator, and Franny, the youngest, is still trying to find her role in the flying circus when we first meet the sisters. I and feel her like, role, aside from the narrator, that's kind of the lead, yeah? You know what? And it's so funny. I, I think it is. When I wrote it, I thought the oldest sister was the, was the lead in my mind. I thought she was going to be the lead. And then, of course, the youngest sister ended up being the lead. Um, but that's a big sister perspective as the oldest sibling. Of course, I just assume the oldest sibling is the star. Um, but I was proven wrong by myself. So <laughs> That's two books of younger siblings starring. So I assume next book has got to be the older sibling, right? It's about time, right? Yeah. 
Um, so okay, what before we get so so obviously you had already written it, you couldn't then go and add wait, wait, I'm gonna play Franny. But I good news, I've written some extra monologues just for her. <laughs> We're gonna extend her her speaking for No, it was locked in. It was locked in. And you know, let me give you just for for your esteemed listeners who may not know about the Flying Flamingo Sisters, um, it's sort of, it's a 1930s radio drama adventure with sound effects and multiple actors and music. And it's so much fun. And it's, I, it's a little Indiana Jones. It's a little Goonies, a little Lemony Snicket. And it's the story of these three Flamingo Sisters whose parents are famous aviators in the 1930s and their parents go missing somewhere over the Pacific and the three sisters set out on this quest to save their parents and to find the Flamingo family fortune um, all the while being chased by their evil uncle Friedrich who is hot on their tail and determined that girls can't fly and the Flamingo sisters are just determined to prove Friedrich wrong. And we end up joining this incredible flying circus and and sailing over the flying over the so yes that's that's and it's based on a true somewhat true well it's based on my family history my grandfather was part of a real flying circus in the 1930s um called the hell divers and they flew all over the Midwest um, in biplanes doing these incredible acrobatic tricks and wing walking and death defying feats. Um, so it's really, this story meant so much to me and so much to my dad who is a, who is a pilot um, now and who was very close to his father. And my grandfather died before I was born, but I love that I got to tell some of our real family history in the Flying Flamingo Sisters. Have you ever done any uh, tricks on, on on planes as research for, <laughs> for the flamingos? I have gone up with my dad in a small a small airplane. Um, we did this. There's a program from put on by the EAA, the Experimental Aircraft Association, called uh, Young Eagles. And so when I was a kid, I got my Young Eagles badge for like going up on rides with my dad in the plane. But that's the ex that's the extent of it. So you're not on the wing doing uh, flips and hanging upside down and all the rest no, of it? Not yet. No. But, you know, my dad got his pilot's license before his driver's license. Like, flying was really, really a big deal in their family. And what's what was really spectacular is that while I was writing Flying Flamingo Sisters, I, did, I was doing research about flying circuses. And I kept Googling the name of his flying circus, uh, the Helldivers, and I couldn't find anything. And then one day... I found this old Minnesota newspaper clipping from some weird newspaper archive. And there was this massive full page article about the flying circus. It was, it was this oversized newspaper, like a broad size, uh, broadsheet size. And, um, and it detailed every trick and every name and it had this incredible photograph of my grandfather and there was there was one there were two women in the circus but only one uh, woman was in the picture and there was a little dog uh, in in the picture next to the airplane because he would perform in the tricks the tricks with them and so of course I had to put a, a little dog in the flying flamingo sisters to just to make this uh, you know full circle 
Um, and no one in my family had ever seen this article. So we got, I got all these reprints and gave them away as gifts to my dad and, um, his, his siblings. Um, and I have one for my wall and it was just really, really special to uncover something that we'd never, um, discovered before. Was that the line that means we need to wrap this thing up or? No, I'm so sorry. That was, that was a text that just chimed in. I thought I had turned off my notifications. Oh, no worries. I, I didn't know if maybe you had like muffins that were, were done and you need to get them out of the oven. <laughs> Do you want me to try to yeah. turn those off? I'm so sorry. I don't, I think I'll, I think we're okay now. I hope. I think we're 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 good. If 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 it comes again, then the esteemed audience will just be thinking about how much fun baking would be. Oh my god, I, I we should make some muffins. Snack time. <laughs> so with the flight flow, because you know you you're under contract because you had to stop in the middle of the horse girl. How much? Um, what's that contract look like? Do you have some court that the story has to be set within this time period? It has to involve this, or is it, oh, I you pitch it and then they say yes, we'll buy what you pitch. Yes. So for, for audible, yeah, it, it, we, it was kind of a complicated thing, but what we pitched, um, I just pitched a bunch of ideas that day in the room and I had no idea that this was sort of one of those, the, the Flamingo sisters was like the bottom of my list. Probably one of the last things I pitched it, it was, you know, I pitched like a witch story and it, uh, what else did I, a mermaid story. Like it was just, this was the last one of the last things that I just kind of tossed off. And then, of course, that's the one that became the winner. And I'm so glad it was. I'm so glad it it was just such a delight to write. And I was really glad I decided to do it like a radio play um, because it was it's more like it's a hybrid of a script in a book. So it was more similar to the writing I was used to doing in terms of script writing and a lot of dialogue. But then I kind of got to have it both ways because I also got to have a narrator who could offer context and exposition. Um, and I, I absolutely love this genre. I hope that there's more to do in this and I hope this category expands because, oh man, it's so much fun to be able to have both toolkits at your disposal in terms of like the scripting elements and, and the music and, and then also the narrator to, to connect everything together. And it's like, a they always say it's like a movie for your ears or a TV show for your ears. And it completely is. Well, now that you, you know, you, you, you've been a bestseller, I, <laughs> I'm imagine Audible's trying to lock you down for something new, right? Uh, well, yes, we might have some news very, very soon about that. I don't, I'll tell, as soon as I can tell you, I will tell you, but yes, I think we might get to, um, the adventure may continue. Oh, so we might, we may allegedly see more of the Flying Flamingo Sisters. That's the hope. I think so. I think that's the hope. And it did end. And, and We're probably it, not Cedric the Caterpillar. It seemed pretty definitive for him. <laughs> poor, the, poor Caterpillar. He was over. But you never count anyone out in the Flamingo Sisters. Um, I'm sure he'll be the Kaiser Soze of the, uh, of the, the second book. <laughs> Uh, well, the best part for me was I, it, it, the book has gotten so many great comments. We have more than 5,000 reviews on Audible, which is just like really unhurt. I mean, I'm, I'm shocked and so thrilled by it. We just hit 5,000 today. So 
Congratulations. That's you. You need to get a bell to ring or something. Um, but the best part is I've gotten these wonderful letters from from parents and drawings from kids and um, and it's from people of all ages. They're grandparents who listen to it with their kids. There's aviation, you know, um, fans who just like the the airplane side of things. And there's a lot of kids, boys and girls, who love having a story with three strong female p- protagonists. Um, and they like that they're confident girls and the kids get a lot of hum- like they like the silly humor and the adults like the family story. So I'm really proud. I'm really, really proud of it. And I'm so I'm just wonderful to get these letters. I've tried to handwrite notes back to everybody I can. Um, and the the one complaint is that it was a bit of a cliffhanger ending. So I'd like to fix that for everyone. Well, it seemed uh, like maybe not the big move at the time, but now you have the opportunity to come back allegedly uh, and bring everybody in with it. Maybe, maybe it was a pretty smart move. <laughs> pretty savvy. You know, I'm not going to say I planned it in advance, but. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, with, with something like that, I assume you sell it, and this is something that would um, make me a little bit nervous, but that's probably because I don't have your Groundlings experience uh, and your experience of writing scripts for others to perform. Does that, um, do you feel kind of a lack of control? Whereas with Horse Squirrel, not only is every word of that book your word or your, your edited word that you, you approved, and then you read the audiobook, so it's read exactly the way you would want it to be read, Whereas I'm sure the cast members are all wonderful, but you've got jokers reading your stuff that's not you. Um, that's got to be, I, I assume that they don't let you come to all of the recordings and, and, and give line readings to, <laughs> to all of the actors. I, I don't imagine that would be appreciated. <laughs> well, I have to say we had the most incredible cast. I mean, they just blew me away. These folks are geniuses. They've been doing it for years. They're very, like, the, we have one of our cast members was on Broadway. Others have won the Audi Awards for Audible Recording. And they're just insanely good. And they're so smart. And they bring so much to the table. Uh, also, I got to work with this incredible director, Thomas Mann. He's just the best. He, um, he, he also came from, like, the kids' television animation side of things. And he was just absolutely wonderful. But I did have to tell myself... You are not the director. Put your director hat, put your writer hat outside. Let Thomas, thank goodness we had Thomas because I trust him completely. And I was able to just let that all go and let him worry about that and let me be the fun actor for the day, who, which I've done before. And I just had to remember, for today, I didn't write this. I'm not directing it. I'm just a fun girl who's here for the day and she's getting paid to do some silly voices. Let's have fun. And I really, really had to do that. Um, And the best part is, yes, of course, you've heard lines in your head one way. But then you hear these really cover something new. And they just take this to an amazing level. And mostly I was just, wow, why, you know, I could, I didn't even realize how great that could sound. Um, They do a lot of the work for you. It's amazing. And I assume in the sequel that may or may not be happening, we're, we're, we're going to see a lot more lines for Franny now. Since we know who's playing her, we know we like that performance. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Oh, gosh. There's so, like, 
That I I like oh I think almost every single character I they're all so good and they're all so different and fun and it's you know there's there's a lot of melodrama in this one because it's a radio play and we get to have more fun than in it just a straight read so um, I'm excited for all of the voices and the characters and I'm not saying that if there there is a sequel but if there were there might be even some new characters so so uh, that could be really fun too. We'll see who they might meet should they continue their journey. Who knows what could happen? We'll, we'll, we'll see. But let me ask you, because you're doing you know, all kinds of fun stuff, is there kind of like a master plan that I will eventually reach this milestone, this milestone, uh, and then one day I will look down from the mountain of accomplishment and I will have achieved every one of my mile markers that got me here? Or are you just doing what seems fun and what's available as it becomes available? I mean, I'm, I am improvising my way down the road, you know, and, uh, and I, I've, I've never known exactly what's going to be next, but it all does seem to add up looking, looking backwards. Um, I, I'm, I think I'm proud of myself that in the last two years, especially, I've just taken some new, some big chances with really new things. And the older you get, it's hard. It's a little harder to do. I mean, I think about, gosh, when I first moved to LA, I was like, yeah, I'm going to audition. I know nobody. I'm going to audition for Groundlings. Yeah, let's do it, you know? And I, and there was a freedom in not knowing to be afraid. And the older you get, things get scarier. So I am, I guess I'm proud of myself for doing some hard things this year or in the last few years, um, trying to be an, to be an author and doing all the audiobook stuff and the narrating and um yeah it's been fun and I just want to keep challenging myself and uh see where these stories that I've already started Horse Girl and the Flying Flamingo Sisters where they could lead and what might where, where else they could go and end up and I feel like we're not done with either of them yet so so we'll see why and also also you know just uh make sure i stay ahead of andy basically that's 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 gonna be my, my i just want to look look back and make sure i'm ahead of andy sandberg and oh right the end of all this. <laughs> uh, far ahead and andy sandberg reaps bitter tears every night that he can't <laughs> catch up to carrie sign <laughs> that's when i'll know i have succeeded <laughs> Everyone in his life, every time he comes in, I'm like, what's wrong, Andy? You seem like, oh, we know it's Carrie Sign. Don't, we're tired of hearing it, Andy. To anybody that's listening to this, it might sound like Carrie Syme, uh She's just incredibly lucky. Uh, just lucky things keep happening to her. She's in the right canoe at the right time, and look how it takes off. She just happens to be in Groundlings. I'm not buying it because you're doing too much for it to all be luck. How, how would you? I, mean, I know that you can't make an exact master plan, but it can't be ac accidental that you're in the Groundlings. Now you're you're headed to New York to to to, to audition for Lauren Michaels. Now you're with Nickelodeon. Now you've been invited to Audible. So you must have a skill for putting yourself out there, for drawing attention to yourself, um, good attention that gets you these projects and, and keeps people interested in you. How, as, as best you can, how could 
those listening that want to do likewise, how could they repeat your success? Well, again, I'll say that, that the through line is telling good stories and, and working hard on their, your craft. And I I took a lot of classes in um, both in the, in the comedy, in the groundlings world in terms of sketch and improv and writing classes with them. Um, but you, but you also, you know, you, you have to work hard, you, you know, you have to put in the time, you have to be a good creative partner to people. And I think that I have tried to do that. The groundlings was a great place for me to land because it gave me a community of creative people and writers and performers who continue to help each other and support each other. And then, and then, uh, you know, you do, you do have to speak up for yourself. You do have to let people know. So I vividly remember when we were doing the live Nickelodeon shows and I'd written a lot of the sketches for a couple of years in a row that I, we had a kind of a follow-up post-mortem with the development execs. And I, I said, Hey, you guys, and I think maybe I didn't do it live in the meeting, but later I said to them, Hey, you know, I wrote several of these sketches that seemed to go really well, this one, this one, and this one, because um, our names weren't on the program. So you, the writer's names weren't on the program. It was just sort of a group writing credit. And I wanted to point that out and say, hey, if you ever have any staff writing positions come up, you know, keep me in mind. And that was a really scary step to do, but I'm really glad I did it. You do have to be your own advocate, especially before you have an agent or anyone doing it for you. And I did a lot of, gosh, so many shows and basements of like Mexican restaurants and, you know, like dingy dive bars. I, I spent so many years performing in those kind of shows with other improv groups, not just, not just the Growlings, but like spinoff groups. And you just have to hone your craft. You have to write and perform and write and perform and over and over and over. So that when those opportunities do arise, and yes, I get I got so lucky so many times, but that I was ready for them and I had prepared and I had like done the training to be ready for the opportunities. Um, you have to say yes when they come. You have to be polite and grateful. Um, I send a lot of thank you notes. I think it goes, you know, a long way. I try to be a joy to work with which is really important. I don't know if you've ever seen this Venn diagram of like success as a freelancer, which in many ways authors are freelancers, right? So so it's like there, there are three categories and you can get two of the three in the Venn diagram to be successful. And one is does good work, turns it in on time, and is, is a pleasure to work with. If you can get two out of three of those, you'll probably get work. If you can get three out of three, you're always going to get work. Um, and so that's something that I tell young, young writers when they're starting out to keep in mind that the, all three of those things are important, you know? Um, the other thing is I'm always up for talking to young writers or um, answering questions, but I will, because I get a lot of requests, I will set up some, some quick little hurdles that they have to jump over, which is maybe I'll say, sure, um, here's my, you know, think of exactly what, you know, your question is specifically, um, read this stuff that I've written about it before. If you have more questions, here's my phone number. And most young people are terrified. I'm not to generalize, but a lot of young people, and I'm talking about, you know, um, high school or college age, um, that's intimidating and they don't do it. Well, I've given you an opportunity and I've given you a hurdle. 
So I want, you have to prove that you're willing to do your effort. And you also always have to present the, you always have to present your request humbly and offer them an easy out. I know you're incredibly busy. If you can't um, help me or answer this question, I completely understand. So just remember to approach people with, with humility and kindness and politeness. And if they give you a hurdle, jump over it if you can, you know, if it's a, if it's a basic thing. Um, that's just, that's a really important skill to have um, if you're trying to get help. And we all need help, right? We all need help. We need people to guide us and point us. So many people have helped me. I've not just been lucky, but I've been incredibly, um, people have just been incredibly kind and generous. And I, I think we all owe that to other people to help them. And I will always do it. But, um, but you also have, and I'll say like, you know, the other, when I talk to a group of college students, for example, about writing, I'll say, you know, if you want to ask a writer for help, it helps if you follow their Twitter or you post about something they've done or shown interest in their work before asking them to help with your work. And you'd be shocked at, at how many times people will ask for help, but they don't, don't do that thing I just told them to do. Um, and I'm not going to be rude and I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but that's something when you're starting out, just, just to pay attention to those things. You can get help from really great people. So just, just uh, to support them as well. Gosh, that was a meandering answer, Ralph. I no, know. I want every writer in the world that's, that's young and ambitious to hear that answer because the number of people, like maybe once a month, uh, once once every few weeks, I get this, uh, some version of the email where, hey, I've written a novel or I'm thinking of writing a novel. Could you recommend 10 literary agents to me? Absolutely. Listen to the podcast. Check out the website. You're going to find everybody you'll ever need. Yeah. And just somewhere. And I know I did it, too, when I, when I was young and, and, and dumb. Just that kind of that sense of entitlement. Hey, make this easy for me. Yeah. <laughs> As though you could. And of yeah. course you can't. Yeah, and so much of that also is I say to the, I say to people, well, you know, the, yeah, yeah, you have to do so much work, but there's Google. It can help you. There are so many great books. Here are the great books to read. Here's ways to get started. But, but you ultimately, like, it's just you got to do a lot of work, too, and I can't do that for, you know. And, and, uh, and I think many people want a secret, easy way to magic trick to get it, and it's just, the trick is to write the book most of the time. Yeah, I love the idea that uh, I know the, the easy way, but I'm not going to do it. I'm working hard <laughs> because I just feel that that will be better for me and satisfying overall. But you can have the easy way. Let me yeah. give it to you. <laughs> um, and we all have that magical thinking. Yeah, we want it to, we want it to be easy. But, um, and, uh, but, but that is not to say, like if, like, if there's someone that means something to you, no matter how famous or important they are, it's okay to reach out to them, you know? Think it through first, but dream dream big. If you have a goal, I always think about this in college. I was in college at Iowa State, and I heard about an internship at National Geographic Television in DC. And I told my like internship coordinator or whatever, and she was very discouraging and said, I think you should really focus local and kind of like tamp, dampen down your dreams. And so, she, so she encouraged me to apply to local Des Moines TV stations for internships, which I did, but I also secretly applied to National Geographic and I just found someone else to write me a recommendation letter. And 
I got rejected from Des Moines and I got accepted at National Geographic. So don't let some self-appointed, you know, gatekeeper slow you down. If you believe that, believe in something. And I had no connections. You know, my parents are teachers in Nebraska. That was it. I had no connections to Sundance, but I, I did have wonderful mentors and professors, people who uh, would write beautiful letters for me. And sometimes that's all it takes. Like, and it can be a cold call and you can get your dream position if you're willing to put in the work and you've proven yourself to other esteemed people. So yeah, I believe in dreaming big and trusting crazy ideas, but doing it with humble in a, in a humble manner with humility and gratitude. Whew. <laughs> Well, usually, and I'm I'm watching our time, and I know I know we're we're there. I don't want to I don't want to abuse your time. Uh, usually, my last question is some version of what advice would you go back and and give yourself that would make a, a difference to make make things easy for you. I feel like we we more or less covered that. Is there anything else that you would want to go back and 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 for your young self to know, and for young writers listening to know? I feel like we've we've really mostly covered it, and I just I think that this path I couldn't have. Um, I couldn't have planned this path and I wouldn't want to do anything different because I feel every experience has helped me get to where I am and has given me this rich life to pull from, to write about. And that's so important too, you know, to have experiences, to, to explore different sides of yourself so that you have those to draw from, um, in your writing. So it, I'm sure, oh my gosh, there's so many mistakes I made that I would probably go back and fix, but then we might be altering time and space and who knows, Rob. So, um, so yeah, I guess just, just, um, trust your crazy ideas, be polite, be very Midwestern, say please and thank you. Um, and, and go for those big dreams. Oh, and get on an audition before Andy. <laughs> Well, we've crushed it on the advice, so my God, let's talk aliens, obviously. Carrie Syme, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? Okay, I've I've never seen a flying saucer or a ghost, but I was fully convinced that this office where I am had a ghost because the lights earlier this year, when I would come on, would flicker in a, in a crazy horror movie way. Um, and, like the dog would run away and I was freaked out. And then it turned out we had a neighborhood power problem that lasted for a couple of months. But um, I still believe there might, you know, there might be spirits watching over my writing. But as for um, the spaceship, okay, I've never seen one, but my grandfather, I think it was the 19, either the late forties or the fifties was flying people over area 51 in Nevada. And everyone in the plane, like their hair turned white or fell out. And there are some crazy things happening there. Um, what? Everybody? So, what? Yeah. I mean, Is it was grandfather probably, as well? Yeah. His, yeah, his hair turned white. And he was, he wasn't, he was, you know, not anywhere close to should have been having white hair at that time. Did he have any idea what might have caused it? I mean, clearly, I mean, clearly it was, no, um, I, it was probably radiation from some experiments, but, um, but well, we don't know, but 
I've, I feel like, of course, there are things going on that we don't know about. Dana Gould has this incredible joke from years ago that says, you know, just because my dog um, doesn't hasn't doesn't know that computers. I'm, I'm really killing it on this joke. <laughs> Just because my dog doesn't know that computers exist, you know, doesn't mean that, that they don't. And I feel like the same thing with um, ghosts and uh, flying objects or uh, spaceships. Like, there's a lot that we may not know. I hope so. Uh, if, if I know everything, what a boring universe. If, if it can be contained within my, my knowledge base, oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my gosh, why did I get so serious on the alien? I'm like, I got really into, I don't know, I'm not really an alien person, but I just can't roll them out. And did it, wasn't there just something on the news last week where a pilot saw, like a United pilot saw something just fly over the plane and reported it? Yeah, plus a bunch of, uh, I think, passengers as well. It seems like just every, well, I mean, this last year, the Pentagon came right out and said they have uh, recovered uh, bits of flying saucers. Oh, we're just going to announce that publicly, and when we're all focused on quarantine, and is, is there an insurrection that's going to end America, and, and et cetera, all our little puny human problems. But now that that's hopefully uh, on its way to behind us, okay, hold up, what was that about the flying saucers that you have, Pentagon? <laughs> let's, let's talk more about that. Yeah, it was a news dump during yeah the world collapsing. So yeah, a perfect time for it. That's if I had. If I if I knew I had to declassify some of that stuff, you couldn't ask for a better time for everybody to be distracted to toss that out there. <laughs> it's really true. And now, where did I like? I just noticed your ninja shirt. Where did the uh -huh. ninja come? That's so cute. Okay, when did that? Where did the ninja come from? Ah, uh, but this particular ninja was designed by Stephen Novak, who designs all of my book covers and just about anything artistic. I, I reach out to Stephen Novak at novakillustration.com. Uh, shout out to Mr. Mr. Novak. Uh, but honestly, of the decisions I have made professionally, the ninja is the one that I put the absolute least amount of thought on. Uh, more than a, a decade ago when I was looking for, I wanted to create a website and I wanted it to be for middle grade books specifically. And I, and I had some other idea. I don't remember what it was and I, it was taken. The domain wasn't available. Oh, heck, what is available? What about middle grade ninja? And like within 30 to 45 seconds, I said, oh, it's available. Great. I'll take it. And that was all the more thought that ever went into it. And I'm, I, I, I like it. It's worked out. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Well, it's your uh, canoe. <laughs> yes. It's my canoe and Stephen Novak, you're my Carl Jones. <laughs> uh, but, uh, what is next for you uh, other than possibly, allegedly, some, some flying flamingos? Are we looking forward to, to possibly more horse girls? Do you have other middle grade stories that you want to write? What can we look forward to? I have to? so many stories I want to write. So well, we're, I'm gonna see, there's going to be a lot unfolding, um, hopefully, this spring. Uh, that I will be so excited to tell you about. I can't tell you about everything now, but um, there's a lot. As soon as I get through this book launch, which I'm really excited about, um, I'll be able to dive into some new stuff and hopefully tell tell you all about it. Well, good. When there's uh, new stuff, there's more possibly, potentially more flying flamingos. Come back. We'll, we'll do this again, and I'll have all new questions for you, and we'll talk about all the great stuff you've written since. I would love that. I would be so honored. I had so much fun. What a fun evening uh, to 
get to talk about all this cool stuff with you. And um, I, ha I just had a blast. Okay, where, uh, I also had a blast. Where uh, can esteemed audience find you online, uh, track you down, follow you, buy all your books, all that good stuff? You can find me at carriesime.com. And uh, you can also find my books at horsegirlbook.com and flyingflamingosisters.com. And can we follow you on Twitter, Instagram? Oh, and yes, 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 yes. Sorry. Follow me on uh, Twitter is at CKSIME, which is C-K-S like Sam, E-I-M like Mary. And Instagram is Carrie K. Syme. Uh, and I'm on Facebook under my name, Carrie Syme. So I'm everywhere. I think I'm even on Clubhouse. <laughs> Conquering the internet one, one, one side at a time. Watch out. <laughs> I'm trying. Oh, my gosh. I'm afraid Thank of Clubhouse. Thank you for two extremely entertaining books as well as just a wonderful conversation. I appreciate your, your making the time. Um, esteemed audience, as always, head to middlegradeninja.com. I don't know why you're not there already, frankly, with all of the fantastic interviews that await you, not to mention guest posts, all kinds of great stuff. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beans. It'll change your life. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.